Thank you so much, Luke, and everyone else leading us in worship through song this morning. What a beautiful, glorious song to just end our time of worship through song and to get us into the preaching of God's Word. And singing is preaching, it's just preaching through song. And now we have the opportunity to preach through the scriptures here. All of the power, all the glory, one day face to face we will see Him. One day, face to face. That day is coming quickly, and we are closer today than we were yesterday. And what I want us to do this morning is meditate on the reality of heaven. Meditate on that day. If you have your copy of God's Word, take it and turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. And while this will be the launching point for our discussion this morning... This is going to be different from normal sermons that are preached in this pulpit. This will be more of a Bible study because I want us to remain in verse 5 before we get to verse 6. We already covered verses 1 through 5 last Lord's Day. And verses 1 through 5 end John's vision of the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. So once we close verse 5 and we open verse 6, we are done with visions of heaven. And I don't want to be done with visions of heaven. I want to stay there. I want us to to feel, to sense, to long for heaven. This last Tuesday, uh, me and my kiddos were all uh, wrestling on my bed, and we were just hanging out, and my stomach started grumbling. And uh, Chelsea was like laying down close to my stomach, and so she said, wow, Dad, you must be hungry. And I said, I'm starving. I am so hungry right now. We were getting close to dinner time. Uh, Hannah was shopping for dinner. We didn't know if she was going to be bringing home dinner. And so I said, what should we do for dinner tonight? Where should we go? And uh, the answer to that question in the Carmichael household is Chipotle. And so I said, you guys want to go to Chipotle? And they all said, yes, we want to go to Chipotle. So we're all laying there in our bed just thinking about every aspect of Chipotle. I said, what would your burrito look like? What would you get? What what would be in it? What wouldn't be in it? And Ethan said, oh, the white rice. It sticks together, and it just tastes so amazing. Chelsea talked about the, the, um, the black beans, and Tyler just said, I like all of it, which is just perfectly appropriate for Tyler. I just want all of it. And I was, yes. And we, as we were talking, Tyler goes, it's like I can taste it. And I said, Ty, I, I've, we've totally been there, right? You smell, like if, if, you, if you know Costco here on Tampa, if you pull into Costco, you drive by this just whiff of in and out right? You walk, you're driving to Costco, and then all of a sudden you get this, this cloud of burger goodness that just smacks you in the face, and it just, it's a tractor beam, like wants you to go to in and out You smell it and you go, I can taste it already. I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but I've heard that at Disneyland, they actually pipe in different smells over different places to try and get you to buy certain foods. Just the simple smell or thought of a taste or desire makes you long for something so much so that you, you can almost taste it, right? We use that phrase. It's so close, I can almost taste it. Well, we need a foretaste of heaven. We need a journey 
into genuine hope. Because today, probably more than ever in our lifetime, we are drowning in a sea of hopelessness. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that people who do not know Jesus Christ are, quote, without hope and without God in the world. It is devastating to be a people without hope because we are always forward-looking people. We're always looking to the future. We're always looking ahead. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says that God has placed eternity on our hearts so that we know that something is coming. We don't know exactly what it is, but we know something happens after we die. And every human heart is working towards that, is longing for that, has a category in their mind that there's got to be more to life than just this. And so before we move on to the conclusion of the book of Revelation in verses 6 through the end of chapter 22, I want to, Lord willing, give us a greater sense of the foretaste of heaven that will enable us to long for it all the more, to know what it is, to know why it's glorious, and to sink our teeth deep into the reality of the hope that it's supposed to give us. John's vision of heaven ends in verse 5. But we're going to linger just one more Lord's Day together. Let's read chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, and then we'll dive in. John writes, Then he, the angel, showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his slaves will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Father, we thank you for this amazing study that we've been able to enjoy together going through the book of Revelation, going through the absolutely tumultuous uh, tribulation through what we see going on in that seven-year period of just disaster and seemingly hopelessness. And then even in that seven-year period, we saw hope, glimmers of hope in your providential hand in saving your own and making sure they were going to make it safely home. And these last several Sundays, just glorying in what heaven is going to be. And we still have questions. And I I pray this morning that with a sense of sanctified imagination, we would be able to see exactly what it is that your word is giving us this morning, that that you are telling us, that you have taught us about what heaven's going to be. There are going to be questions that we will never truly know until we get there ourselves. But there is so much that we can know. And so, Father, I pray that as we study heaven today, as we do a little bit of a Bible study, maybe less of a sermon and more of of turning around in the Scriptures and mulling over these various points of what heaven will be like, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, namely, specifically, open our eyes to see the beauty and the glory of what heaven will be, how satisfying it will be for us. 
I pray that you would make us long to be there. And I pray for any in this room who do not know why heaven is amazing, why Jesus is worthy of every affection that we have, that this morning you, by your grace, would bring the gift of regeneration, that you would work in their heart today, turn their heart to trust you, to love you, to long for you. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, we studied last Lord's Day. We are here east of Eden, but there we will be brought back into an Edenic paradise. Eternal life will be restored. The tree of life will be restored. Perfect unity and peace will be restored. A curseless world will be restored. Perfect obedience by God's people will be restored. Unwavering security will be restored. And unlimitedly satisfying relationships will be restored, not only with God himself, but with one another. That's what we looked at last Lord's Day. And John Calvin says about heaven, we must all the more than keep sobriety lest forgetful of our own limitations, we should soar aloft with the greater boldness and be overcome by the brightness of the heavenly glory. We also feel how we are titillated by an immoderate desire to know more than is lawful about it. And from this, trifling and harmful questions repeatedly flow forth. So there is a danger to want to know more than the Bible has given us about what heaven's going to be. But... The Bible has given us a lot of information about what heaven's going to be like. And over this, uh, th these last few months of studying Revelation 20 through 22, you all have asked many amazing questions uh, about what heaven's going to be like. And, and as I've answered some of them, the majority of them, I say, I don't know. The Bible doesn't uh, totally tell us. It doesn't give us a, a full account and actually describe it. But what I want to do this morning is do a little mini-study on miscellaneous questions that you all have asked. And I, I'm not going to be able to get to every single one of them. I, I normally take about five to six pages of notes into the pulpit with me. I have 24 pages of notes. So we're not going to be able to get through all of them. So if you have a question that I'm not able to answer, number one, it might not be answerable in the scriptures. Number two, we just didn't have time for it. So we'll see how many we can get through. But again, by God's grace, I pray that we would just have a sense and a longing for heaven as we go through these. What will heaven be like? What on earth? We will be on earth. What will earth be like as we are here in the new earth, the new heavens and the new Jerusalem? Number one, we will be ruling. It's there in verse five. We will reign forever and ever. We will be ruling. There will be ruling and reigning. There will be authority given to certain people to rule over other people. Now, we think of governing as always self-promoting, arrogant, corrupt, uh, inequality, and inefficiency. That's not the way that government works in heaven. The ruling that God gives his saints to do in heaven over other saints will be perfect. So just a couple verses. We're going to turn to some of these. We won't turn to all of them because there's a lot of verses here. So just write these down. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure to the end, we will reign with him. So we are given a promise in 2 Timothy 2, 12, that we will reign with Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 through 3. Paul says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you and you're not competent to... Uh, to constitute the smallest laws in court, 
So do you not know that we will judge angels, how much more all of the matters of life? So we are going to have judgment over the angels in the afterlife. In heaven, God will give us authority over angels. We will rule over people. We will rule over angels. There will be some sort of governmental hierarchy in heaven. There will be some sense of hierarchy in heaven in a governmental way, but never in a relational way. There's governmental hierarchy, but never relational hierarchy. For example, the Apostle Paul, I'm guessing he's going to have a lot of leadership in heaven. He's going to have a massive position of governing authority in heaven. But that does not mean that any one of us will be any further away or inaccessible to him or from him. So there's a governmental sense of he's going to be ruling and reigning in a different capacity than you and me, but we will not be divided relationally because of that rule. Luke chapter 19, verse 17, in the parable of the minas, which is describing our use of money and our use of gifts and our faithfulness and what God's given us and how we use it. Jesus says in the parable, well done, good slave. You've been faithful in very little things, so you will be given authority over 10 cities. If you're faithful in this, you'll be given authority over this. If you're faithful in much, you'll be given authority over much. Psalm 8, verse 6 says that in the here and now, God has made us to rule over the works of his hands and put all things in subjection under our feet. Hebrews 2, verse 8 says that's going to happen here and then. We will rule and we will reign. Christ won for us this amazing privilege to rule. He battled Satan. He battled temptation to fight, to give us the ability to say no to sin, say yes to him, and to rule and to reign. Now, we don't know exactly all that this will entail, but here's one of the questions that I received. <laughs> Somebody said, I thought we were retiring. I thought work was over. I thought we were going to rest. I don't want to rule anyone anymore. I'm done ruling, right? When we rule here, we have authority over here, we have administrative responsibilities here, and then we go there and we do it all over again? Doesn't sound fun. Let me answer that. Number one, our desires here on earth are going to be very different from our desires there in heaven. Number two, just imagine responsibility and administrative authority with no sin attached to it. That's the reason why we want to retire, right? That's the reason why we want to get out of the rat race, because we're so sick of the way that sin corrupts what we're doing. But just imagine responsibility, service, leadership that is pure joy, no ulterior motives on your part, no incompetency, nothing that you ever do that you go, well, that was a fail, I messed that one up. You will just be perfect. Think about it in other situations. Maybe you don't like speaking in front of people. You have a fear of public speaking. And you think, man, if I'm given authority to rule over people and I have to speak in front of them publicly, that sounds like torture. I don't want to do that. Well, you'll be changed. You'll be changed in heaven. It will be something that you enjoy doing. This applies to a lot of things in heaven. Maybe you go, singing sounds terrible. I don't want to sing. I don't like singing. I don't like music. Your affections will be changed when you go to heaven. I don't really like people that much. I just want to be on my own. I'm an introvert. I don't like this idea of multitudes of people in heaven. Good news. God's going to change you. 
God's going to change you. We know this to be true in a much lesser sense here on earth. There are foods that we used to absolutely hate when we were kids. Uh, we now love. Mine was guacamole. I couldn't stand avocados and guacamole. They were disgusting, icky. If I was ever given that as a kid, nah, no. I love guacamole. I even pay extra for guacamole now. <laughs> That's how much I love it. When we grow up, we grow into this mature taste buds, mature tastes. How much more so when we are grown up, if it, you want to use that terminology, into mature, glorified, perfected bodies will we rightly enjoy everything that we're supposed to enjoy perfectly. So let me say it this way. Some of the most qualified people who will be leading in heaven may have zero desire to lead here on earth. But in faithfulness to what God's called you to do here on earth, God sees that faithfulness and says, in heaven, I can change your heart and your desire to lead, and I'm going to give you a faithful leadership position in heaven. Conversely, some of the most famous leaders here on earth may not lead anything in heaven. Some of the most famous pastoral leaders on earth may not even be in heaven. So what's happening here on earth is not necessarily a one-for-one one of what heaven's going to be like. Because if you think, well, that person's a leader, therefore they're going to be a leader over there. No, it's not about your giftings here. It's about your faithfulness to whatever God's called you to do. And if you're faithful and little, a person who is never seen in doing anything in obedience, but they faithfully do it, they're going to be known and noticed in heaven for faithfully obeying the Lord. That leads to number two. Not only will we rule with Christ, we will be given rewards in heaven. We will be given rewards. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. I want to give you some other verses here that will be helpful, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12 is really, really helpful in regards to the rewards that we will receive in heaven. Verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work, this is building in your life, the things that you do in your life, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. There will be judgment, not the great white throne judgment, that's for non-believers alone. Believers don't go through that. Believers go through what is called the Bema Seat Judgment where we, when we die, we will stand before God and not be judged as far as heaven or hell because we are going to heaven as believers trusting in Jesus Christ. But we will be judged based off of our works on uh, rewards for good works done in the name of Christ and judged and burned away for bad works uh, that we did not do in the name of Christ. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. So at the Bema Seat Judgment, if you do works that were done in the name of Christ and obedience to him and faithfulness to him, you will receive a reward for it. If, anyone, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he will be saved yet as though through fire. So this doesn't depend on your salvation. You will be saved, but you will not be given a great reward. We are rewarded in heaven and people are rewarded differently in heaven. This immediately begs the question in my mind, what about jealousy? 
Will we be jealous of somebody else's greater reward than ours? Will our happiness in heaven be diminished because of our small reward in comparison to other people's rewards? Jonathan Edwards is really helpful here. He says, all shall have as much love as they desire and as great manifestations as they can bear. And so all shall fully be satisfied. And where there is perfect satisfaction, there can never be any envy. So we will not be jealous. We will not be envious. He goes on to give us specific reasons. He says, number one, in heaven, love between saints will be so perfect and so perfected that we'll delight in each other's rewards. We're going to see somebody's reward, and we're not going to be envious of it. We're going to delight in it because we love each other perfectly. Number two, we will completely trust God in heaven such that when we see the rewards that he gives to others and not to us, we're going to glorify him and say, that's right. And then number three, he says, the most glorious and rewarded in heaven, so the most faithful, most obedient, most satisfied in Christ here on earth will be the most glorified and rewarded in heaven. And the most rewarded in heaven will be the most humble and aware of their own limitations that they could not have done any of it apart from Christ anyway. So they're not going to boast about it. You're not going to be envious about it. There's going to be no jealousy in heaven. God will expand your heart in heaven, give you an ability to love others in a way that we can't even think of loving each other here we, we do this here on earth anyway, right? When you're worshiping the Lord through song, for instance, you, you see somebody, you hear somebody who is enraptured with the lyrics, who is in love with Christ, and it makes you want to worship God more, right? We see that here. We feel that here. How much more so there in perfection when we see that somebody gave of their lives faithfully, obediently, in humble service to the Lord, we're going to say, yes, amen and amen, and I want to glorify God on that behalf on, on what God has done through them. We're going to love to see and enjoy the rewards of others. Matthew chapter 6, you can write these verses down. Really, Matthew 6, 1 through 21, you know some of these passages. What is done in secret will be rewarded by your heavenly Father. So what you do that no one else knows you're doing will be rewarded by God. He says, store up treasures for yourselves in heaven. Store up, give yourself rewards in heaven by your obedience here on earth. What will be rewarded? Anything done for the glory of God? Anything done in humble servanthood? Sacrificial giving? Suffering for the kingdom? Advancing the gospel? Giving to the poor? Secret acts of fasting and praying? Anything done to help those who are advancing the gospel? Anything done in love to help other Christians? Just faithfully working hard will be rewarded. Behind every reward that you are given in heaven will be a story of why you are receiving it a specific story recounting the reason why God is giving you that reward. Heavenly rewards are directly connected to our earthly deeds. And therefore, in heaven, one of the ways that I've heard it is no story, no glory. In heaven, if you aren't given the recounting of the story of why God in his grace worked through you to accomplish that act of obedience, then there's going to be no reason for the glory of that reward. So God, in his kindness, will walk you through every single aspect of obedience and faithfulness and say, here's the reward for everything you've done. This is biblical. You might say, well, this seems a little bit prideful or a little bit uh, idolatrous to want rewards in heaven. Well, number one, that's, it's not. Uh, biblically, it's not. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 Without faith, it's impossible to please God, right? And then what's the definition of faith? Whoever comes to the Lord in faith must believe two things. That God exists 
and that he is the rewarder of all who seek him. So it's not idolatrous to seek rewards because seeking rewards is seeking an extension of God himself, God giving us himself. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 12. Rejoice when people persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you. Be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. That should change the way we live. It changed the way Jonathan Edwards lived. He said this in his resolutions. This is resolution number 22. Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yes, even violence that I am capable of, violence against his own sin, or bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. I want to gain as much happiness in the next life as possible. We will be rewarded. How will we ultimately be rewarded? This is one of the most staggering promises in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait. Wait until the Lord comes. He will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then, listen to this, this is staggering. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. We gather on the Lord's day to praise God. He will gather us together on that last day to praise us. That's shocking. To commend us for the works that we did in his name, on his behalf, to glorify him. John chapter 12, verse 43 says the same thing. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in Christ, but because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess Jesus because they were afraid they'd be put out of the synagogue because they loved the approval of man rather than the approval of God. And that's the same word, the praise of God. Do you want God to be pleased in what you're doing or do you want man to be pleased in what you're doing? Because rarely can you have both at the same time. Are you living for the reward of eternity? Heaven will be a place of ruling, of relationships together, where we work together to accomplish a goal of glorifying God. But heaven will also be a place where we are rewarded for all the things that we've done here. That should change the way that you live your life. You should glory in doing things in secret, knowing that God sees, no one else sees, and on that last day, he will reward you. He will reward you. There's ruling in heaven. There's uh, uh, rewards given in heaven. Question number three, what about sunsets, seasons, and seas? Back in Revelation chapter 22, it explicitly told us that there's no night. We said it could be a reference to only evil. could also mean that there's no darkness only in the New Jerusalem, that God's glory shines in the New Jerusalem. But maybe you and I can go to some crazy distant galaxy way far away, and we can see the sunset, as it were, through the glory of God, uh, radiating through the planets and the galaxies, hitting us. Maybe that's going to happen. It could mean literally there's no night ever at all, period. But in the exact same passage, we're told that there's months and there's seasons. So how this works, it's similar to here, but it's not like this. It's similar to the new earth, or it's similar to the old earth, but it's not the old earth. We're told the same thing about seas. There's no sea, which maybe it just means evil, or maybe it means distance or separation, and nothing scary. It could also mean that there is literally no sea, no ocean. But at the same time, there's water because there's a river of life that's flowing from the throne. So 
we don't quite know exactly what's happening. But I think that this is a helpful remembrance for us as we cover everything related to heaven. Number one, the bottom line in all of this is we will never miss anything. So if you love a sunset, which who doesn't love a glorious sunset? If there are no sunsets in heaven, which I personally believe that there will be, but if there are no sunsets in heaven, you won't miss it because there's going to be something better. How it all works, we don't know, but I promise you, you won't miss anything. It's helpful to remember the curse is removed, right? The curse is lifted, but the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, time itself is not a product of the curse. That all was created before the curse was given. So when the curse is lifted, all of those things do not have to be removed. A helpful illustration would be thinking through buying a plane ticket. You buy a plane ticket, economy, cheap seats, sit in the back of the plane, and then somehow somebody calls to you and says, hey, we've got a, a first-class seat for you. You can move up to the first class. You can move up. You don't have to sit in the back where it's noisy and cramped. You're sitting in first class. As you're sitting in first class, as the plane has taken off and you're flying to your destination, sitting in that beautiful luxury seat in the first class, are you thinking about what you're missing in economy? Man, that, that tight leg room. I just wish that my knees were knocking against the chair in front of me. You're not thinking about that. You're not wishing that you were back in the plane. The liabilities of economy are removed in the first class, but the assets of economy are not removed. You're still getting to the destination. You're still enjoying the ride. So all the bad things are taken away by you being promoted to first class, but none of the good things are taken away. So somehow, someway, in heaven, we are going to enjoy the beauty of God's creation. Maybe there are no seas. Maybe there are no sunsets. There are seasons. There's months. So I don't know how it all works, but I can promise you, you won't miss anything. None of us is going to be looking and going, man, the way that it used to be, that cursed earth, that was better. No one will be thinking that. Question number four, what about galaxies? What about stars? What about space as a whole? How will we function here on the new earth? A helpful passage to write down is Psalm 148, verses 3 through 6. Psalm 148, verses 3 through 6, where it literally says, the stars will never pass away. So the Bible is very clear that the stars will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. So what's the psalmist saying? The psalmist is saying the exact same thing that you and I can say about ourselves. You and I will pass away, but we'll never pass away, right? You and I will pass away. We will die, but we will never die. So too, the stars are going to be destroyed. The galaxies that we see around us are going to be destroyed. But they will also never be destroyed because in the new heavens and the new earth, they're going to be remade. I think that there will be stars and galaxies, remade galaxies. That the stars that we see today, cursed galaxies, cursed stars, are going to be destroyed. They will be recreated. They will be remade. And we will enjoy all of those things to their fullest. Whatever you think is beautiful about the galaxy, the sun, the moon, the stars, planets around us, whatever you think is glorious about that, imagine that times a billion in heaven. And we will occupy space. Remember Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he said, touch me. He specifically said to his disciples, see that I'm not a ghost. I'm not a ghost. He says, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Luke chapter 24, verse 39. 
That's Jesus' resurrected body. That's going to be our resurrected body. And that's going to be similar to the resurrected planet and galaxies. We will have a body confined to space, confined to time. We're not floating around on a cloud. You can't put your hand through our bodies and pull it back out. That's not what's going to be happening. Space, matter, they're not evil. That's Gnosticism. Gnosticism believes, it was an old first century heresy that believes that spiritual is good, matter is evil. So all matter is bad. So we're going to have all the matter taken away in heaven and we're just going to live a spiritual, ethereal life. That's not biblical. We're not going to be spaceless. We're not just going to be beings that aren't contained and confined in a body. If we were, we would be omnipresent and we will never be omnipresent. Only God is omnipresent. So we're going to be confined to a a body, to space. Even Jesus himself as a resurrected being was confined to a body. Always will be confined to a body. Now, I think that that body's going to do some pretty cool things, like Jesus' body. Uh, it does normal things like eating, drinking, also can walk through walls and ascend. So whether we teleport or ascend or fly, we don't know. But I wouldn't doubt that we have the capacity to, to do things that are amazing like that. But there will be space in heaven. There's going to be Uh, limited areas in heaven where we get to interact in a place. I'm going to say to Luke one day, hey, let's meet up tomorrow at the third gate on the east side of the New Jerusalem. See you tomorrow? See you tomorrow. Boom. Because there's going to be a place and we can sit at the gate. Angels in the Bible, Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, can be hindered in time and space. They can be delayed So even now, heaven is a place of of time and space. It's a place where you have a a being, you have beings that can interact with other beings in in time and space. Some people think that heaven's going to be amazing because there is no time or space there. But even that statement itself, I've had people say, well, there's going to be no time and space there in heaven. Even that statement requires space. If you're going to call it a there, if it's heaven, if heaven is a there, it's a space, it's it's a place. The reality is that our new bodies will be infinitely better than our bodies here. They just will never be infinite. Only God is infinite. Our bodies will be finite bodies. They will have immortality, but they will still be limited. Isaac Newton said of God himself, he is the eternal, the infinite, the omnipotent, the omniscient. That is, his duration reaches from eternity to eternity, his presence from infinity to infinity, and we will never touch that. (laughs) We'll never be that. What about time? This is a question that several of you have asked. Will there be time in heaven? And why why is this a question? Because I think biblically it's very easy to say, yes, there's time in heaven. But why is this a question? Um, One theologian said it this way. What a relief and what a joy to know that in heaven there will be no more time. Another theologian says, heaven will be a place where time will stand still. So my question before we answer this is, where did this idea come from? You're going to interact with people who have this idea that heaven is a timeless place. Where did the idea come from? It came from a couple different places. Number one is 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. You know it, right? 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 8. A day, one day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day. So people go, see, time has no meaning to God. That's not true. He is outside of time, yes, but time absolutely has meaning to him. And since we're never going to be infinite beings, then we're going to be stuck in time and space. 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that there is such a thing with God as a day 
and a thousand years. And this is all in God's perspective. He, he's not slow in his waiting or in his uh, punishment of evil. It's, that verse doesn't negate that there still is time. There's a day in God's economy. Another reason, and you can turn to Revelation chapter 10. This would be helpful just for your eyes to see. We covered this briefly when we were studying Revelation chapter 10, but another reason why people would say that there is no time in heaven is because of a mistranslation of Revelation chapter 10 verse 6. Revelation chapter 10 verse 6 says, I swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, and there will be delay no longer. The King James Version and other versions just say, there will be time no longer. But the word there isn't just time as a whole stopping. It's there will be no more time that we have to wait for God to carry out these things, namely the end of the judgments in the Great Tribulation. So because of that misleading translation, it should be that there is no more delay, but some people have read it as there is no more time anymore. Also, hymns. There are certain hymns. There's a hymn that literally says, time shall be no more. It's very ironic, though, because that same hymn goes on to say, quote, when the morning breaks. So if time is no more, then number one, why do we have morning? And number two, what is when? If we have no more time, what's when then if we have no time? You have to have time to have a when. I think Amazing Grace is a better hymn uh, to, to think through the idea of heaven when we've been there 10,000 years. We're going to be there. There'll be time the Bible gives us a clear picture of time in heaven. Luke chapter 15, verse 7 says that heaven rejoices when a sinner repents. So when a sinner on earth repents, heaven corresponds in time and space to rejoice. The martyrs in heaven are told to wait in Revelation 6, just a little while longer. Wait, you're in heaven, but just wait a little while longer. And they ask how much longer? Revelation chapter 7, verse 15, it says that the, the saints in heaven serve God day and night. So even in heaven in that passage, there is a night, there's a seasonal, there's a daily rhythm. Revelation chapter 22, verse 2 gives us the idea of months. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1 says that there's silence in heaven for a half an hour. And then obviously I've said multiple times now that singing itself requires time. You have to have time in order to have singing, to have song. So don't ever confuse eternity with infinity. Eternity goes on forever. We will live forever, but we will live forever as finite beings in time and space. We can, uh, God can accommodate to us by putting himself into time, which is the miracle of miracles in the incarnation, but we can never accommodate to him by becoming timeless. We will always be in time. We will live, that means we will live in heaven a sequential step-by-step -step existence. Have you ever looked back at your day and thought, man, I wish I could redo that? Or if only I could go back and change that? You'll never have that thought in heaven. As you progress throughout your day, whatever a day looks like in heaven, you're never going to have a thought looking back, oh, I wish I could redo that. You're going to do exactly what you're wanting to do and wishing to do in perfect sequence and in perfect righteousness. Again, time existed in Eden before the fall. Time is not a product of the curse. Time isn't the enemy. The curse is the enemy. Sin is the enemy. But when sin and the curse are destroyed, time remains 
and time will never work against us. We'll never run out of time. Time will only ever bring gain. Time will never again bring loss. That's why we don't like time now. That's why people think time being gone in heaven will be such a beautiful thing. Because time is our enemy here because time takes away. But time there will only give and give and give more and more and more. Never threatening, only bringing new adventures without any sense of loss for what must come to an end ever. We will live with time. We'll never live with the pressure of time. We will never have to number our days like Psalm 90 talks about. Moses said, teach us, Lord, to number our days. Never have to learn that lesson in heaven. Henry Burkhoff says it this way. Time is the mold of our created human existence. Sin led to the fact that we have no time, that we spend a hurried existence between past and future. But the consummation is the glorification of existence will not mean that we're taken out of time or delivered from time, but that time as the form of our glorified existence will also be fulfilled and glorified. Consummation means to live again in the succession of past, present, and future, but in such a way that the past moves along with us as a blessing to us and the future radiates through that presence so that we strive without restlessness and we rest without idleness and so that though always progressing, we are always at our destination. I love that. We're going to strive in heaven but without restlessness. We're going to rest in heaven but without idleness. And we will always be progressing in heaven but always feeling like we are at our destination. Hebrews chapter 11 the author of Hebrews, as he's going through that Hall of Fame of Faith chapter, he says towards the end, uh, time will not permit me to keep going, which is just every preacher's excuse to end the sermon, right? We're done. I've run out of material. Time won't permit me to keep going. We're out of, we're out of time. We're done. We can never say that again in heaven. Time won't permit me to, to share. Oh, we have all the time in the world, and we will enjoy it perfectly. What about natural wonders? What about the way that the world will look? Remember, John was taken up to a high mountain, not the high mountain in the New Jerusalem. He's taken up to a high mountain. And to be grammar nerds here, we have to remember that a means there's more than one. If you say the high mountain or the only mountain that's there, we've got a definite article that means there's no other mountain there. But a high mountain out of all the other high mountains, we have an option, a possibility that there are other mountains there. Remember, Jesus said he's making all things new, not all new things. So I think the world that we will inhabit in the new heavens and the new earth will be a lot more similar to our world than we tend to think. The beauty of our world, think about it now, is under the curse. But there, when that curse is lifted, imagine the natural beauties, the natural wonders that we will experience. What about this? Who will we be? Who will we be and how will we know each other? How will we relate to one another? Well... You will be you. I will be me. We will be ourselves. Mark chapter 12, verse 26. God says that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You remember this is when Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees. They ask him that crazy question of the woman married to the eight or seven different guys, and they all die. Who is she married to in the resurrection? They didn't believe in a resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. And Jesus says, God, at the burning bush, when Abraham, Isaac, and Moses were long gone, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were long gone, God said to Moses, I am still their God because they're still very much alive. And they're alive as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember at the transfiguration, 
Peter, James, and John see Moses and Elijah. They don't see some glowing ghostly figures and go, must be dead people, but we don't know who they are. They see them and they go, oh, it's Moses and that's Elijah. They have their personality. They have their personhood. You will never cease to be you. Even in Luke 16, Jesus called people by their names in the afterlife. Lazarus dies and he goes to heaven and he's still Lazarus. We remain individuals. You remain who you are. But, good news, without any of the bad parts. Who you are, physically, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, that's who you're going to be in heaven, but without any of the bad parts. All of the sin taken away, uh, taken away, all of the corruption of the curse taken away. What makes you, you? It's not just your body. It's your memory, it's your personality, it's your gifts, it's your passions, it's your preferences, it's your interests. And all of those things will be glorified in heaven, restored to exactly the way that they were meant to be apart from the curse. So think about that personality trait that everyone loves you for. You're going to have that in heaven, but perfected. And think about that character trait or that personality trait that you hate about yourself, that you wish was different, and that you feel like people don't like you for. If there's sin involved in it, which there probably is, you're not going to have that again. God's going to redeem it. God's going to make you perfectly who you're supposed to be. C.S. Lewis, in The Problem of Pain, expressed his awe at the diversity with which God created us when he said this, If God had no use for all of our differences, I don't see why he should have created more souls than just one. Your soul has a curious shape because it's a hollow made to fit a particular swelling in the infinite contours of the divine substance. It's a key to unlock one of the doors in the house with many mansions. It's not humanity in the abstract that is to be saved, but you, you the individual reader, John Stubbs or Janet Smith, your place in heaven will seem to be made for you and for you alone because you were made for it. You were made for it stitch by stitch, just like a glove is made for a hand. If we weren't ourselves in heaven, then we would not have any sense of being able to be judged for what we did because we would be different than who we were. We wouldn't have any sense of being rewarded for what we did because we would be different from who we were. We will have all of our life stories, not being clones with meaningless names, just bumping into each other. Who are you? Where'd you come from? Remember Revelation chapter 7. When John sees that vast multitude, he says, who are these people and where did they come from? And the answer answer that the elder gives is not, nobody knows. We're all just these glowing figures with white robes and we don't know what we're doing or who we ever were. What does he say? Oh, these are the ones who came from the Great Tribulation. We, We know exactly who these people are. They have an identity. They have a personhood. We will never be absorbed into the all or reach nirvana where we're made one with Brahma. Like, that's not what happens. The afterlife, according to the scriptures, is we have individual personality. Back to C.S. Lewis, he describes us as being bent, sinful versions of ourselves, broken and bent, sinful versions of ourselves. But when we die, God, the great physician, goes in and remakes us to be exactly who we're supposed to be, and he takes that cancer of sin out of us and makes us perfectly who we're supposed to be. We will never be angels. That's another common misconception that when we die, we become angels. We'll never be angels. We'll always be humans. We'll have emotions. We'll be able to eat and 
drink and sing and rejoice. There's banquets, there's feasts. We will have desires, but never a wrong desire, never a misdirected desire. Just like Lucy said in the last battle, I've got a feeling that we've come to the country where everything is allowed because nothing will be done from a sinful motive. How will we know each other? We'll know each other based off of the interactions that we have here on earth. You are a soul. I am a soul. And our souls are bumping into each other when we interact, when we enjoy each other, when we fellowship with each other, when we confront each other, when we share Christ with each other. I will know you better than I know other Christians who are not in our church family. But I'll get to know them in their personhood as well. What about what age? We have to pick up the pace here a little bit. What age will we be in heaven? This is a common question several of you have asked. What age? Are we the age that we died? We don't know. The answer is we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Over the course of church history, people have given their various answers. Some say because we have a peak in our natural progression of our bodies, and the peak seems to be a little bit high, in my opinion, because they said early 30s is where you peak in your physical strength and prowess. 18 was my peak. I don't know about you guys. (laughs) I started going downhill in my 20s. Some say it's our, our peak age. There was one commentator, church historian, way, way back when, church father, who said, we will be 33 years when we are in heaven. 33 years old. Why? That's the age that Jesus died. No biblical support. We're grasping at straws here. One of my favorite answers to that, so the answer is I don't know. The Bible doesn't know. You don't know. None of us knows. But one of my favorite answers to this question is we will be... And, and experience with other people the age that we knew that person best. So to your parents, for instance, they will view you in the beauty of you being their child and enjoying that. To a parent, you will view them. You're not going to get to heaven, according to this view, and it could be wrong, but according to this view, you're not going to get to heaven and then see a little child walking around and go, Mom? Like, no, you're going to know that that's your mom. And somehow she's going to know that that's you. I especially enjoy just thinking about this and meditating on this. I enjoy this because we know without a shadow of a doubt biblically, we know that children who either die in infancy or God calls home from the womb, miscarriages, we know that they're in heaven. And I I wonder, again, we're not told, but I wonder, wouldn't it be just like our God to redeem that loss by allowing you the privilege in heaven of meeting your child and growing with your child? What you lost here on earth, they will somehow as they've been translated into heaven, they fully know what's going on in heaven. They're not little babies in heaven wondering, where am I and what's going on? Goo, goo, gaga. They're not doing that. But maybe God in his kindness says, you will get to know your child and experience the growth. I don't know how it's going to work. I just promise you it'll be better than we could possibly imagine. And we can imagine a lot, right? It's going to be better than you can imagine. Jonathan Edwards said, the heavenly inhabitants remain in eternal youth, not as an age, but eternally joyful, exuberant, curious, laughing, and spontaneous. 
Augustine talked about our bodies. Our bodies shall be of that size which it either had attained or should have attained in the flower of its youth and shall enjoy the beauty that arises from preserving symmetry and proportion in all of its members. Overgrown or emaciated people need not fear that they shall be that way in heaven, of such a figure that they would, in this world, uh, if they could help it be. No, we'll be perfectly translated, perfectly glorified. What about eating? Will we eat in heaven? Yes, the Bible is very clear. We will eat in heaven. We eat from the tree of life. We drink from the river of life. We eat the Lord's Supper anew in the kingdom. We will eat. Then instantly we go to meat. Do we eat meat? Because frankly, tofu sounds awful. <laughs> and I'm going to miss meat. So I think that we can say biblically, I think we have an answer for this because I think biblically, since there is no death, pain, fear, or suffering in heaven, then I'm guessing biblically we can say you can't hunt animals and they're not going to die and they're not going to be killed because there's no death, no pain, no suffering, no fear. But, number one, either God can actually make tofu that tastes like meat, which he can do that if he wants to. I really can't wait to try it. Maybe, number two, maybe one of the seasons on the tree of life, remember it has 12 different fruits, maybe one of the fruits is a meat season. And all of us meat people go to the fruit of the tree and eat from it. Maybe it's that. Or, number three, I think maybe a little bit more of a biblical understanding, maybe, remember how Jesus fed the 5,000, which was the 25,000, it was 5,000 men only, 25,000 people? Remember how he fed the 25,000? He bypassed life and death altogether. He just created dead fish. And so maybe there's a way that God can bypass the idea of of life to death to suffering to fear, none of that, and just give us some pre-made feasts of meat. I don't know, but I know we'll eat. I know Jesus ate when he was a resurrected being, and we will eat as well. So many other questions. What do we know? What do we know to be true? What do we know heaven will be like? We will never sin. We will have free will. We will only choose what is right. We will never have the ability to be tempted or to ever choose what is wrong. We will enjoy relationships with each other. One church historian wrote this, quote, a great multitude of dear ones is there now expecting us. A vast and mighty crowd of parents, brothers, and children secure now in their own safety, anxious yet for our salvation, longing that we may come to their right and embrace them, to that joy which will be common to us and to them, to that pleasure expected by our fellow servants as well as ourselves, to that full and perpetual felicity. If it be a pleasure to go to them, then let us eagerly and covetously hasten on our way so that we may soon be with them and soon be with Christ. We'll never, we will learn. We will never know everything, so we'll be learning in heaven. We're never going to be omniscient, so we're learning. We're going to be able to go back. I think that we're going to be able to go back, and God himself will show us glorious mysteries that we didn't even know occurred on the earth. He will be our teacher. Psalm chapter 111, verses 2 through 4. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. We're going to be delighting in the works of the Lord in heaven, so we're going to be studying them, and God's going to be our teacher. God will be our teacher about history. God will be our teacher about theodicy. You guys remember theodicy is the problem of evil. Why do bad things happen in this world? If God is good and all-powerful and all-loving, why does he allow bad things to happen? God will be our theodicy teacher in heaven. 
explaining the details of his beloved children's suffering. Psalm 56, verse 8, you've recorded my wanderings. You've put all of my tears into a bottle. They are all in your book. Turn to one last passage and then we'll close. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. You know this passage. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were by nature children of wrath. But, verse 4, God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our, trans- in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, he's going to show us all of his kindness. I think that that means, whether it be in our sinfulness or in our righteousness, God's going to go through our history and all of human history, and he's going to show us how he was saving us, how he was preserving us, how he was sanctifying us, how he was glorifying himself through us, and he will be our greatest teacher in all of those moments. And we're going to say it was all worth it. It was all worth it. Thomas Watson said, if the sins of the godly are mentioned on Judgment Day, that's a question. Will we remember our sin? Will we know our sin? If they are, we don't know, but if they are, it will never be to shame you, but to magnify the riches of God's grace in pardoning you. The saints will then be without spot or blemish, without shame entirely. We are strangers and aliens in this world, Hebrews 11 says. We are to look for and long for that eternal hope. So for you here this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that there has been a more concrete sense of what heaven will be like over the last few months together studying the scriptures. Heaven's going to be amazing. And if you're here and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't know Christ, you don't love Christ, you don't follow Christ, you don't obey Christ, and you have no reason to believe that heaven would be wonderful for you, I want to plead with you now to not leave until you do business with God. Turn to Christ. Trust in Christ. Understand your sin keeps you out of heaven, but Christ made a way for your sin to be taken away. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, until you've given up yourself to him, you'll never have a real self. Sameness is to be found among the most natural men, but not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike are all the great tyrants and conquerors who have been How gloriously different are all of the saints. And then he says this, Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ, and you will find Him and with Him everything else thrown in. Would you look to Christ now as we pray that He would be our vision until he calls us home. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we do pray that you would be our vision, high king of heaven, winning our victory. May we reach heaven's eternal shores on that final day. We love you and we long for you 
and with you everything else. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Let's just stand together and sing. Let's lift our voices to the Lord. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my greatest thought, by day or by night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence. Let's sing the last verse, High King of Heaven. High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joy, O Mariah, heaven's son. Heart of my own heart, whatever Still be my vision, O ruler of Our benediction this morning is from Hebrews chapter 13. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, because here... We do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Amen? God bless you this week as you seek that city which is to come. We'll see you Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for Bible study. God bless you.